0: Brothers and sisters, His is indeed the kingdom, the power, and glory. And that comes about especially in and through His church, um, who are citizens of His kingdom. As we have been continuing our study, um, considering our, our mission and our core principles, I want to, this week, focus again... Um, a second time on kind of breaking out some implications. And I, I think we'll do this one more week, probably next week as well, because there's a lot to this. But what it means to seek first His kingdom, God's kingdom and His righteousness to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as, as we have said, as, as we saw last week, that seeking God's kingdom, His righteousness, um, certainly means to uh, have a fundamental passion for, uh, fundamental uh, earnestness and zeal that works out in our lives to pursue the things that make for uh, the kind of fruit to which our Father has called us. We, we pointed out that our Lord Jesus, uh, in John 15, is a great example of this, that he tells us no less than eight times in that passage, I am the vine, you, my disciples, are my branches. And the goal of the branches is, is singular. You say, what is it that God the Father wants? What is it that Jesus the vine wants? What is it that the Spirit wants? And what is it, therefore, that the church, which is the fullness of Christ, who fills all in all, what is our mission? And the answer, Jesus says no less than eight times, is that you would bear fruit, more fruit, abundant fruit, abiding fruit, that your fruit would remain. And as I said, the goal of fruit, brethren, is to be eaten. (laughs) That's the point. Fruit's not there just to be ornamental. It's not the sort of thing you see in Hobby Lobby, right? Fruit is to be eaten, To be, to so that the nations may satisfy and taste and see through our lives that the Lord is good. They may see Jesus in us. They may see our good works. They may see the fruits of the Spirit coming out and, as we engage with them in the various spheres to which the Lord has called and appointed us. And that they may see and engage with the living God through Jesus, the light that is in us. That, that's the call. And to be earnestly about his kingdom and righteousness means that if we seek that first, that's our first, our chief and highest end. And That means that we order our lives in such a way that lesser things, things that don't tend towards that end, that we're ourselves, we are pruning those things out and saying, Lord, I want my life to have a deliberate orientation towards those things. I want, to, I want to yearn for fruit and pursue fruit as much as my Father in heaven wants fruit in and through us. Uh, brethren, if we have a heart like that, we will abide in Christ. And if he, uh, we abide in him, and he in us, his words in us, Jesus says, we will ask. It's not you will ask and maybe things will happen. He says, you will ask, John fifteen seven, and uh, you will ask and it will be done for you in my name. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And that as we ask and we receive from Him in Jesus' name, that fruit will come. Because as we learn in, in Luke uh, chapter 13, our, our, our Luke 11, our Father is a Father who is not stingy. He is one rather who He is good. We being evil know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more will your Father give good gifts and bring about fruit in those that ask of Him? So prayers that means that we use and that the Lord has called us to, uh, to believe in this day. I would have us to consider another aspect of the kingdom, and this is really gets down to the role of the church, uh, the church. And to that end, I'm going to ask you if you turn to Matthew chapter 18. And I'm going to I'm going to read two passages again. This is a little more topical today, but I'm going to read Matthew 18, verse 15 through 19, and then I'm also going to have us read in Acts 2. So if you'd stand together for the hearing of God's word, let's start. With, and Matthew chapter 18, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, please forgive me, I'm, I'm getting myself backwards here. Matthew 16, verse 15 through 19, hear the word of the Lord, Matthew 16, verse 15 through 19. He, that is being uh, Jesus, he said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then secondly, would you turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter I'm going to read to you verse 40 through 47. Acts 2, verse 40 to 47. And with many other words, he, being Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly, in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done, among, done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need." So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let us pray. Father, please take this word, press it upon our hearts. May we see the goodness and the beauty of your church, the church that Jesus is building, his ecclesia. And Father, may we embrace it, love it, And I pray that you would help us to begin more and more to be as well as become the church that Jesus himself is building. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated, brethren. I want to consider these words that we read in Matthew 16. I said, I want to look this week and next and break and really consider Jesus' words. It's kind of our primary text. Jesus says there that he is going to build his church. And it's a church that the gates of Hades would not prevail against. We're next week going to look at what that means. What does he mean by the gates of Hades? And what does he mean by the keys of the kingdom that he says he's going to give to them to bind and loose? But this week, I want us to consider just really two things. One, the church's nature... Um, and then also, as we consider the church's nature, also to—I'm going to say—the church's method, or maybe God's method, for building and growing His church. Jesus says here that I would build my church. I just want to consider this first of all. Look, if you consider the, the setting, this is particularly interesting. I didn't read this, but back in verse 13 of chapter Matthew 16, it said that Jesus and his disciples had come into the region of Caesarea Philippi. And that's when he asked them who do men say that I am and so on. Caesarea Philippi is way up in the very northern end of the territory that had been allotted uh, by the Lord to, to Israel in the Old Testament. It's north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, quite a few miles up there. Um, and in Jesus' time, this was, uh, as the name would imply, it was Caesarea, a town named after Caesar uh, and Philip. It was a, this was a, a, a locale That was dedicated to, named after, as well as dedicated to the worship of, uh, first of all, of Caesar, of the the cult of Caesar worship, Um, and and it was no mistake about that. It's interesting about Caesarea Philippi also that the area around it actually uh, it, it was scattered. And uh, in, in archaeology, uh, it's been interesting. It was scattered with the remains of numerous Syrian uh, Baal worship temples, uh, at least 14 that have been discovered right in that locale. Remember, uh, the, uh, it had previously been in the southern region of what was Syria at the time, and they had built altars of Baal worship uh, all around that area. Um, it, it was also, in Roman times, it was the center of the worship of the Roman god, god Pan. Um, uh, and uh, this was, there was uh, caves even and, and, and idolatrous um, idols carved into the sides of the cliffs all around Caesarea Philippi. Um, and so this was a well-known uh, area for the specific set-aside for the worship of Pan. And, and I'll talk more about this next week, but there was actually a cave there a cave there that had uh, been specifically where sacrifices to Pan and offerings were offered. And that cave had actually been known during Roman times as the gate of Hades. Now this is going to be really interesting when we get to next week and consider Jesus' setting of this and what he means by this, but that will be for next week. But the point is, is that there, this was an area that was rife with the symbolism, with the monuments of idolatrous, demonic infiltration and oppression. Um, this was going into enemy territory, if ever there was, their Ancestria Philippi. Um, demonic, idolatrous things all around. It's interesting, it's also the place where from that very cave, incidentally, that had been understood as the uh, the can, the cave called the the gates of hades where pan was worshiped that was actually out of that cave in those times came a spring that actually was one of the four springs that uh, contributed to the jordan river that formed the jordan river which is you know in israel that was the uh, fundamental source of water and life uh, Jesus did much there in the Jordan. And so this was a place of, of great symbolism to them. It, there was, uh, it was built, incidentally, on a high, high cliff. I've seen pictures of this. Uh, almost 1,150 feet, there was this huge rock embankment standing over this fertile valley. And Caesarea Philippi was built on the top of this large, very, very high plateau, this rock. This rock, and again, think of the symbolism of what Jesus is saying because this is important. Uh, when we put all this together, you know, the Caesar worship, the worship of Pan, all of the idolatrous uh, monuments in this area. Jesus is there with his um, with his disciples, and it's like Jesus deliberately sets himself against this background of all the idolatry, the demonic influence. Uh, in in darkness he sets himself against this background and he tells his disciples there you know he's heard who the others in jerusalem the sadducees the the scribes who seek his life what they say he is says who do you say that i am and peter in that context before all of the idolatrous monuments and all there says you are the christ you are the son of the living god you are the one true Son of the living God. and it, It's just shining this beam of light into spiritual darkness. And Jesus, I can imagine looking there at that huge rock on which Caesarea Philippi says, Peter, you are a rock. You, the Lord, your Father has revealed this to you, not flesh and blood. I can imagine him looking there at that huge cliff Accessory of Philippine saying, Upon this rock, this rock with all of its idolatrous monuments to the Syrian gods and to the god Pan, this rock with at its base this cave that is the gates of Hades, where they said, On this rock I'm going to plant my church. And the gates of Hades will by no means prevail over it. Jesus is giving an ultimatum here. And this is amazing because here he is. Uh, kind of a homeless, uh, itinerant rabbi with 12 fishermen as his, as his apostles. Who would have thought, in the face of all that, that Jesus could build, as he says, a church and it's going to prevail over all of the spiritual darkness that is pervading this land? That's exactly what Jesus says he's going to do. So I want us to consider then when Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, what is the church? It's interesting here, the word that Jesus uses, uh, which is a word we see throughout the epistles, especially uh, in Paul's writings. Uh, We see it in Peter as well. But um, the word Jesus uses here is, is I'm actually going to build my ecclesia. And this is a really important word we consider this, uh, when we consider, first of all, with regard to the church's nature. The word ecclesia, which is commonly translated church in our English translation, literally, it was a ruling assembly of citizens in a city-state. Now, the, the it's often translated as a church or sometimes, often, sometimes as assembly. You see this in our English translations. Um, the ecclesia was interesting because it was primarily a term that was taken from and well-known, understood throughout the Roman Empire. So it was a secular entity, but Jesus was essentially redeeming and transforming it for righteous ruling on earth and in the heavens in Jesus' name. The ecclesia, you know, he could have said, on this rock I'm going to build my temple, or I'm going to build my synagogue. Jews would have certainly understood that. Um, you know, the the temple was uh, certainly there in Jerusalem, but they understood, uh, you know, temple, they understood synagogue. These were the two main uh, Jewish religious institutions with which they were well known. And certainly we understand that Jesus does teach uh, and the apostles certainly make it very clear in other places that the church is, in fact, the temple of God, that we are a priest in that temple, the heavenly temple uh, we are indwelt uh, with the Spirit as the people of God, as the temple and the house of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 2, we read that earlier, and so on. 1 Peter, we read earlier, tells us that we are living stones in that temple being built on the foundation of Christ, that we are a royal and holy priesthood, serving not in the earthly temple, but in the heavenly temple. So it's not that Jesus abolished the temple, Okay. The temple has been, there's the heavenly temple and the earthly temple now is in among the people of God themselves as the dwelling place of God on earth. And where the church gathers, there is the gathering in the temple of the Lord. But the use of this term Ecclesia, I think, is extremely significant. Um, and, and, And that Jesus... Jesus uh, you know, really takes here, and in contrast to the temple and synagogue, which were localized and static, they were in one place, and had stated times of services and gatherings each week and each day for sacrifices and gatherings to hear the law read. The ecclesia in the Roman world functioned as essentially kind of a buildingless, mobile people movement, a called out, a chosen governing uh, assembly that was designated or designed to operate 24 7 in the public square, in the marketplace of each city state, for the purpose of impacting everybody and everything in it. Uh, The best way of thinking about this in our modern day would be something like the city council. Here in Peoria, we have a city council that meets monthly and meets other times. It's open monthly, but they meet. The city council is kind of like the ruling body, as it were, here in our area. Well, the ecclesia, each Roman city-state would have an ecclesia set aside. And Jesus is taking this existing, well-understood secular entity and injecting kingdom DNA, as it were, into it his law, his life, and in using it for his purposes. The Ecclesia had been in use for centuries in both Greek and Roman empires to refer to, like I said, a secular institution that was operating in the marketplace in a kind of judicial governmental capacity over each city-state. The Ecclesia was originally developed as a local ruling assembly of citizens in the Greek democracy in the centuries before Christ. And the idea was that each city-state would have an ecclesia to govern uh, each of it, to govern the affairs, to rule and judge uh, as like a city council over the affairs of that state, and that city-state. The ecclesia would consist of all men in, in those days, 18 years and older, who had served two years of military duty. In the Roman Empire, the Ecclesia had come to identify any assembly of citizens of a city-state who were duly called, convened under the laws of the Roman Empire and its Caesar to represent and to act in a governing capacity locally. Uh, they, it, it really, in effect, was the Ecclesia was the authority and power of Rome, the capital of the empire, locally, acting under the name of Caesar, as it were. And you begin to see these, how this begins to work out when Jesus says that they are acting in his name with the authority of the kingdom of heaven, the empire of heaven, that idea. Those in the ecclesia, therefore, were very much invested in and committed to the welfare of their city-state. That's a really key point. The people who were on the ecclesia, they represent, these were the ones, they were very, very invested in the welfare and the good of the city-state to which they had been appointed. They understood that their capacity and that was to rule, uh, in, to rule and bring the laws of the Roman Empire to bear in just ways, and, in, in righteous ways, to benefit the city to which they were stationed. So, biblically then, the church, Jesus' ecclesia, I would say, is not a place or a building. It's more like a council where members, we congregate each Lord's Day for a service of worship, certainly true. Certainly we do congregate in our congregations for worship and fellowship, but that's not fundamentally what we are. We're not a building. The church, the ecclesia of Jesus is the company of the redeemed, the anointed and empowered uh, 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 with authority citizens of Jesus' kingdom in covenanted relationship with the living and triune God. We convene in our respective local city-states, in our local local, uh, congregations for worship, for fellowship, proclamation, prayer, and for ruling and judgment on earth as in heaven. To wield the keys of the kingdom, to pray, and to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. The biblical church, the biblical ecclesia operates 24-7, 365, as we saw in Acts, from house to house, all over town not just as a sta- not as a static institution in one place but as a heaven-shaping culturally transforming decision-making society impacting holy prophetic priestly royal body of ambassadors those who are commissioned by and with the authority and power of Christ our head our king of kings to disciple nations and to exercise his governmental jurisdiction on and over the earth and in the heavens even in Jesus name Brethren, that is the Church of Jesus Christ. That is his ecclesia that he's building. The Ecclesia is one body, one family, one assembly, comprised of the assembling saints on earth, the church militant, as well as the permanently assembled saints in the heavenlies, the church triumphant. We read earlier, um, we, 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 we I'm sorry, we, we can read in passages like Ephesians 2. You know, Paul says there that. Um, We now who are in Christ are seated in the heavenly places, right, in Christ. You can think of passages like Ephesians 3.10, where we read that God's purpose in and through the church is to demonstrate in the heavenlies His wisdom in this mystery of the church, bringing Jew and Gentile together in one ecclesia, one ruling reigning judicial body on earth and heaven and his goal is that through the church which is jesus body his fullness that he would demonstrate even paul says in ephesians 3 10 to the powers the principalities the powers in heavenly places in the places of ruling and reigning to demonstrate to them his wisdom and his sovereignty and his goodness through his church rather than that's no small calling That's no small calling. We have come, as Hebrews 12 says, we run our race here on earth, but with that great cloud of witnesses, the heavenly ecclesia that is now assembled around the throne. We read about that in Revelation. We're told in Hebrews 12, 22, and so on, that we have not come to Mount Zion. I mean, we have not come to the earthly Jerusalem, rather, uh, to Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to the presence of Jesus, the mediator over all men. To the says, to the spirits of just men, now made perfect. And to the assembly of the firstborn whose souls are in heaven. You know what that word assembly is there? Church. It's ecclesia. Brethren, there's a heavenly ecclesia of which we are part on earth. Now, I'll be clear, that doesn't mean that we do like the Roman Catholics and pray to, to the saints in heaven Brethren, they're not our mediators. Jesus alone is our mediator. But brethren, we do read in the scriptures that while we don't pray to saints, we pray to Jesus, to the Father in Jesus' name, we pray with the saints. When we get to Revelation, we read, I might have you turn there, but you can read in Revelation 5, Revelation 6. It's a good example of this it um, talks about the prayers of the saints being like the incense before the throne. And that's the combined prayers of the prayers the church triumphant in heaven as well as the church militant on earth. Rising before the throne is that sweet aroma. We read in Revelation 6 about the saints there uh, by the altar. It's calling out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge us on our enemies, those who did evil to us? And he says, Just wait a little bit longer, it's coming. But they're asking the Lord, brethren... We are part of one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church in heaven and on earth. That's a marvelous thing to consider. We're part of that ecclesia, that innumerable multitude. The ecclesia is an empowered, transforming, countercultural entity, an assembly that overcame and turned the world upside down despite much ongoing resistance by the world. Remember, Jesus had said to his apostles that he would give them his peace. John 16:33 He says, "There are these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the point, Jesus is, is that because I have overcome the world, you will overcome the world. You will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. We will rule and reign with him now, and, and we will do what is right, and we will be His assembly on earth. And he gave them, he says, his peace. And again, that peace is a peace that's both vertical as well as horizontal. That's why, like I said, all of Paul's epistles, what do they start off with? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That shalom of God's blessing, saying you are the blessed of the Lord. I pronounce my, my, my ruling of very good, my restored, redeemed people. My image in you, I pronounce my good on you. Peace to you and blessing. And grace. And that peace, vertical with God and also horizontal between the people of God. Think Ephesians 2, right? He came and preached peace to you who are far off and who are near. Ephesians 2 18. For by him we all have access by one Father, by one Spirit to the Father. The wall of division, whether Jew or Gentile, maybe we say between believing Baptist, believing Presbyterian you know, between those who trust in the living God. That wall has been broken down. It doesn't mean that there's maybe not tribal distinctions, even with the church. In Israel, there were 12 tribes, one nation, 12 tribes, but they each had distinctives. But there was one people. And so too, brethren, with the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus says there is one. He has an assembly, his ecclesia. And it has the universal, but it's also local. And that local assembly, his ecclesia, we meet in our respective congregations, but we are part of the ecclesia, the church of Jesus, the ruling assembly in Peoria and Tazewell counties. Just as sure as Jesus addresses the churches in the seven cities, so too he does to us. And we need to understand that's part of what we are, that is our identity. And this church in Jerusalem that we read about in Acts 2, and you can go ahead and turn there, Again, since we looked at that, this church, because I want to finish by focusing there today. This church that Jesus is building, that he said he was going to build on top of this rock. The rock of, the, literally over on this rock, towering over and built upon the demonic manifestations. This rock, this rock of Peter's confession. You are the Lord. You're the Son of God. You are the Christ. And let the other demonic imposters and idols, let all would-be usurpers, let them understand that they are going to bow the knee. Because Jesus Christ alone is Lord. That's the idea. On this rock of profession and confession of truth to Jesus Christ, allegiance to Jesus Christ and to the apostolic testimony. On this rock I'm going to build my church and it will prevail and this rock, this church that Jesus began building right there in Jerusalem at the very beginning, we see that within just a few weeks after Pentecost, it had literally, as it said in Acts five twenty-eight, they had turned the world upside down. They had filled Jerusalem with this man's teachings. Everybody in Jerusalem, through this fledgling, he had three thousand souls converged, saved, and suddenly all of Jerusalem. Over 100,000 or more had heard of this, the teachings of this Jesus. And they had seen this church uh, gathering, uh, gathering together in Solomon's portico. And from house to house as we read about in Acts and so on. They filled Jerusalem with Jesus' teaching in the months after Pentecost. Acts 5.28. It's interesting. Two years after the Apostle Paul planted an ecclesia, a church in Ephesus, We're told in Acts 19.10 that all who lived in the very large province of Asia, Asia today is kind of equivalent to modern Turkey, right? This huge Roman province. All who had lived in the province of Asia had, in fact, heard the word of the Lord, Acts 19.10. That's over a million people in Paul's day. Over 300,000 square miles. By the mid-50s A.D., when Paul wrote to the Roman ecclesia, the Roman church, he said in Romans fifteen nineteen that the gospel had gone from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, that he had preached the gospel. As I said, that's over 300,000 square miles. And it prompted Paul to set his eyes then all the way towards Spain, uh, Romans 15, verse 18 to 24. And that was 3,600 miles west of Jerusalem on the far western edge of the known world and empire at that time, the edge of the civilized world. Brethren, this all happened in just a couple decades. Jesus accomplished all of this through his church, through his ecclesia without governmental assistance, with no ecclesiastical assistance whatsoever. In fact, usually despite ongoing persecution from both government and the ecclesiastical ones, right? They weren't the favored few. Um, they, were, they were swimming uphill the whole way. But brethren, as we consider these things then, I want us to keep that in mind. I want to bring one more specific thing that is often interesting pointed out, uh, the conventus. What happened during the Roman period is that a specific and special form of the Ecclesia, the Romans adopted the Greek idea of Ecclesia, but there was a specific form of that that the Romans referred to as the conventus. And it functioned, like I said, as a localized image and expression of the Roman Empire and its emperor locally. Um, despite geographic distance from the Roman capital, uh, again, called chosen citizens duly gathered together in Roman city-states, they were recognized by Rome as constituting a local representation of Rome and their emperor, and they brought the authority and the presence of Rome to their locale in the name of the emperor himself. Right? That's what they were doing. Uh, And as we will see, it only took, in Roman times, it only took two or three duly called and and, and chosen citizens gathered together in the name of of the emperor to constitute a conventus. Now, brethren, where does does Jesus say something like that? When two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. What is Jesus saying? We'll look at that more, but he's saying, look, you have the authority and the power of heaven and of heaven's king. They are in your midst to do my business on earth as in heaven. When my church is gathered, that's a marvelous thing. Um, Jesus is giving a promise that what, therefore, that conventus, his two or three gathered in his name for the purposes of his kingdom, that they will have authority to bind and loose on heaven and on earth. So, brethren, does that give you, does that give us uh, an idea of the ecclesia that encourages you? I hope it does. Brethren, church is about so much more than just us coming on Sundays to worship. This is what we do, and we praise the King of heaven, and we gather in our assemblies for a holy convocation. Brethren, we, we have judicial authority in heaven and on earth. We are the chosen. That word elect and chosen has far more to do than exclusively with chosen to salvation. It's chosen to salvation, but brethren, you and I are elect, called to the heavenly assembly to rule and reign with Jesus with his church. So I want us to have those thoughts thinking. Secondly and lastly, look at the church's method. Again, focus there in Acts with me. Check 242 uh, and following. What I want you to notice specifically here is that as Jesus builds his church, uh, right there at the beginning, you know, those that gladly received his word were baptized and were added 3,000 souls to them that day. I'm going to stop there and just ask a, a fundamental question. So I've asked this of myself what what would we do what what would we do? what would the church the soul of five churches here what would we do here in Peoria if we had an evangelistic outreach um, whatever form that took, call it a tent meeting, call it what you want, and maybe various pastors from these churches. We gathered, each of us, to preach the gospel and bring it. What would we do if 3,000 people were converted to Christianity? Can you even imagine that? Would we have an infrastructure, an operating methodology to even know what to do with that? I will tell you this. You know what would happen, saints? We would have people come, maybe to our church and some of these other churches. We'd have people show up, maybe lots of people show up. Who have their kids in public schools? We'd have people show up with husbands and wives, you know, driving the pavement, 40, 50 hours a week to come out. Doing, we'd have people showing up in our midst, brethren, who were very much not where we are in our convictions except that they had come to believe and know and trust in the living Jesus like us, and they were eager to follow him and to learn to be his disciples. See, brethren, part of being the ecclesia, this was a really diverse group of people. They were all gathered together here in Jerusalem. And yes, there were challenges that came around. You can read about that in Acts 6, right? There were challenges concerning the feeding and distribution to the widows. There were challenges in the churches between Jews and Gentiles getting along. There were issues that came up concerning what is the place and relevance of the Mosaic law in the life of the Christian. We can read about that in the epistles. There were issues with pagan idol, idol worship in some of the churches and some of the uh, people still clinging to remnants of those and trying to have the syncretic. There was all these challenges, this was not, this was not a, 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 an ecclesia that um, was isolated where um, it's like, you know, we've got, our, we've got our brand, we've got our things, and, and uh, we're segregated from that. And yet, they were an ecclesia, one body, that could and would be called out from the world to be separate unto the Lord. I bring all this up to say, when we consider the method of the ecclesia and and this gathering in of souls, my, my, my yearning for all of us is to say, is that your yearning? Our Lord Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. People like us. Jesus came on a mission not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He came to build a church an ecclesia and it's going to comprise of people from all walks of life people who are new disciples maybe who have a, a lot of maturing to to go in who maybe are are just definitely not yet yet where we are in some of our convictions brethren could we embrace people like that as saints and brethren could we patiently work with them and love them and not just tolerate them but gladly point and push point them towards Jesus Brother, I would hope that we could be a church like that and part of the church that would be able to do this sort of thing. Brother, and that's, what, that's the church Jesus is building. And you notice here that it's a church that I'm just going to say, uh, it, it's a church that Jesus uses kind of the existing rails that were already in place. How did this church grow? And the answer is, is house-to-house, table fellowship, hospitality, centered around meals. That, that's how the assembly, the ecclesia functioned in Acts. Notice here, again, look at Acts 2.42. Look what we read there. It says there that they, they gladly received his word, were baptized. 3,000 souls were added to them. And then this, this large group of, of various people from all walks of life, from different areas, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers Verse 46, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food together with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to the church. He was building His church that way. Brethren, as we consider this, I want you to notice, first of all, notice food's involved a lot here. I think it's it's interesting. It's kind of like food plus continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and teaching, plus fellowship, plus the breaking of bread, which is generally considered to be a reference to the sacraments, uh, to the Lord's table, the bread and the wine, plus these intense, marvelous gatherings of, of corporate prayer with holy hands lifted high without wrath and dissension like First Timothy 2. When these things come together, you put a meal there, get people together in their houses from house to house throughout the week, and, they're, and they're, somebody's reading the scriptures, just reading the scriptures, the apostolic doctrine, and, and there's fellowship over the meal, joy maybe singing some praises to the Lord, and there's uh, and you know maybe there's the breaking the bread in Jesus' name, uh, and there's there's just these intense prayer going on, brethren. That's an assembly. That's the church. That's ecclesia, and that is the church that it says here that the Lord was adding to that church who were being saved. They were going with praising God, having favor with all. Brethren, I'm just going to tell you right now, the church of Jesus Christ, as we see it by and large, does not have favor with all. We are, we are a people that, as Jesus said, by and large are being trampled under foot of men as salt that has lost its savor, light that's hidden. And what the Lord did also, it says that many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Brethren, I'll tell you that when the church of Jesus Christ is striving to be more like that kind of church, we should expect, we will see, we will see the Lord Jesus begin to pour out power from on high. I remind you last week we looked at two passages from Romans and 1 Corinthians. Paul describes the church. He says, the kingdom of God is not not eating and drinking fundamentally. It's righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit where you've got those things going, that is the kingdom of God. That's an assembly representing the heavenly kingdom on earth. Jesus says also that the, I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 to the Corinthians who were this divided, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. To this messed up church in Corinth, he says, you remember that the kingdom of God is not in words. You Corinthians are big on words. You've got a form of godliness, but you deny the power of it. You Corinthians are really big on your wisdom and your words. Uh, he says, but the kingdom of God, you know where Jesus is working and because there's power. It's not in word only, but it's in power. Power of transformed lives. The power, honestly, many times of, of, of things like healing. Again, brethren, this isn't Steve getting all charismatic. This isn't me going off the deep end, but do you believe that Jesus is willing and able to heal? I believe that. I do not believe in a kingdom where now we win the world exclusively by just simple sheer force of our persuasion. Brethren, if I have to save people or bring people into the kingdom simply by getting them to persuading them of the truth of the gospel and my own authority and by the wisdom of my arguments, brethren, it will come to this much fruit. Jesus tells us in John 16 that the apostles would testify, the church would testify with them, but he says the Holy Spirit, he will go with you and he will testify of me. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will do it effectually in their hearts as we do it here. But brethren, the question we need to ask all of ourselves is, are we content? Are you content with a church? Am I content with a church where there's no power? Or do we yearn, does your heart yearn for and pray and plead with the Lord, Oh Lord, make us a people unified in truth, in faith with our brethren, so that we will see your power coming out, see you begin to add to your church again. I'm not content, and I don't think you should be content. One of the reasons I am praying, brethren, that the Lord is going to fill this this sanctuary in these coming days is because I love all of you dearly. I love you deeply and dearly, but I love the church of Jesus Christ because I love the kingdom of God. And so stagnancy and fruitlessness, brethren, are simply not an option. It's not an option for me, and it's not an option for us. Amen? I pray that'll be so. May the Lord help us. They continued. then. Let's just finish out very quickly. So this is the church. Again, this doesn't mean that we're embracing a house church movement. We meet on the Lord's days. But brethren, this means we need to be engaging with other believers and our believers as much as we can as opportunity presents itself. Having venues and opportunities for brethren to gather together and to hear the the word of God read, to fellowship, break bread, to pray together, to function more as the ecclesia of Jesus. The Lord knows our heart. When we pursue His kingdom, His way, He's going to help us even when our steps are small, if we're going in the right direction. Because see, what the ecclesia did is it turned pulpits, in a lot of ways, into dinner tables. Right? What it did is it turned it turns homes of believers into assembly halls, ecclesia halls. It turned assembly gatherings become equipping for daily ministry in the household and the marketplace. To take the word of God and the anointing of the Lord as his priests and kings into our households and the marketplace, as ambassadors of the High King with his authority. And the ecclesias were also places where strangers were welcome to join in the meals. Not the Lord's supper, but to gather in. Why don't you turn to First Corinthians chapter fourteen, real quick, as we close up here. 1 Corinthians fourteen. The Apostle Paul. Speaking to the church, the ecclesia there in Corinth, he makes this point, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22 to 25. It says, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole ecclesia comes together in one place, and all were speaking with tongues, and there would come in those who were uninformed or unbelievers... Will they not say that you're out of your mind? Yeah. But if all prophesy, an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, he's convicted by all. Thus the secrets of his heart are revealed and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Imagine that. I will tell you, brethren, the odds of getting an unbeliever, maybe, I'm going to try in the coming days, I'm going to be canvassing frontier estates across the way with... Uh, flyers and we're going to be letting people know that we're here and we're going to be letting them know that we are here to minister in Jesus' name and to pray for needs they have. I would ask you to bless that endeavor. But brethren, you know, if we're going to say, well, here we are meeting here and so um, we'll wait for those people to darken the doors of our church. Well, I will tell you statistically that's not very likely these days to just have them come What happens here is they're taking the church to the households and they're taking them and bringing strangers in and inviting them to join and to hear with them over food, over fellowship on their tables. And this is how, within just a few weeks after Pentecost, brethren, the church filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. It's not that suddenly everybody in Jerusalem was just wanting to come attend a church service. Rather, what had happened is that the ecclesia had permeated the city and they were inviting all the people, all these unbelievers, to just join them at their table meals. And they were. And the church was growing with God's blessing and there was power and their prayers were being answered. And the whole city, even the surrounding cities, Acts 5.16, had heard the word of the gospel. So, brethren, I'm just going to conclude there. As we consider the church that Jesus is building my, my call to all of us here is this. Is that our vision for the church? That's Jesus' vision for his church. And resurrection as a local congregation, we are a distinctive part of that church, of that body. Brethren, my exhortation to you today is to think the way Jesus does about the church. As we think of the peace and purity of the church, absolutely maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace with those who are called by Jesus' name, who love him in truth. Be vigilant about that. And just, I'm going to ask you, brethren, for myself too, seek every opportunity to use even things like table fellowship. Use our table, our houses. Can we get other believers into our homes? Maybe people with whom you work. Say, hey, let's come over for dinner. Let's pray and praise together. Let's fellowship. Let's invite people over. Don't hesitate to invite unbelievers into your home for table fellowship. Let them see the goodness of the Lord and use food as a means to bless them. That's how the early church did, right? And Jesus blessed that with power. Brethren, may the Lord help us. May he help us to be that kind of church. My yearning for you and for me is that we would be and that we would be becoming the kind of church that Jesus himself is building. Because when we do that, brethren, we will see the Lord add to our number. Not just us, but to the church of which we are part. We will see him pouring out power to transform lives. We will see him pouring out power maybe even to heal in answer to our prayers. Wouldn't that be something? Brethren, that's what I want to be a part of, and that's what I'm calling you to be a part of. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus has built his ecclesia and he's building his ecclesia. It's a, a church on the rock. A church that will be triumphant over demonic powers in the heavenly places and on earth. A church that is a ruling, reigning authority gathered in Jesus' name all throughout our city. Father, all throughout our area with the authority and the anointing of Jesus on us. Father, give us wisdom as we seek to go forward and slowly uh, but surely pursue this vision to walk in greater unity with the brethren throughout the city, the church that you are building, to love your people, to fellowship with them over our table meals and in times of gathered worship and praise and prayer with our holy hands lifted high in anticipation of an outpouring of goodness from on high in answer to prayer, of an outpouring of... of, of um. Revival, an outpouring of power for transformed lives as well as even healed bodies. Lord Jesus, I believe you are willing to validate and to show yourself strong on behalf of your glory on earth to those who seek you and set themselves to do your will and to pursue your kingdom, your church, your ecclesia as our chief and highest end. Oh God, make us a church, a local congregation of your church that will be fruitful and bless us as we seek to take our steps going forward with faith, with courage, with zeal, with compassion to pursue your kingdom, your church on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to that end, we pray, and let us not lose heart, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.